Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And Jacob, on the show today, we have three, well, actually more than three stories for the listeners, but three segments for the listeners. One on all of the craziness that happened after Burning Man with our friends over at the AP, the Associated Press. Uh, After that, I talk with reporter Gabby Bierenbaum in D.C. about what's going on with the primaries here in Nevada. And at the end of the show, you, me, and our editor, Michelle Rendells, do a quick news roundup because there's been so much happening that we thought we would just do a quick rapid fire segment there with all the news. So let's get into it. I am joined by AP reporter Gabe Stern. Gabe, welcome back to the show. You were on a few weeks ago to talk about fentanyl, but we're talking about something uh, much different this week, uh, Burning Man. Much different, much different, but thanks for having me, Joey. Yeah, yeah. So Burning Man, for those who don't know, I'd be surprised if you're in Nevada and you don't know what Burning Man is, especially in northern Nevada, but it's a big festival that happens about three hours north of Reno in the Black Rock Desert, and it was running this year from August 27th to scheduled to end on September 4th. But yeah, they got a lot of rain, and so Gabe, you did some reporting after the fact on the on the festival. What were people's thoughts? A lot of the media was covering it, saying it was a mess, a disaster. But you you heard uh, from some burners, right? Yeah. So um, we we myself and a team of other AP reporters staked around Reno and talked to as many burners as we could. We went to the Reno airport. I was stationed at Whole Foods. A colleague of mine was at Walmart. And yeah, we, we talked to people about a variety of perspectives on just the rain and the events. And for the most part, a lot of people said that it, it didn't dampen spirits or dampen spirits for some, but not most of the people there, that they were able to adapt. And that this year, a major theme of Burning Man every year is self-reliance. And what I heard from multiple people is just that it really ramped up the theme of self-reliance this year. One person I talked to right out of Whole Foods, he was just coming back from Burning Man. He had been there many, many times. His first one was in 1997. And he described what on paper might sound like a nightmare scenario to a lot of people. It actually took him 12 hours to get from Burning Man to Reno. Eight of those hours was just waiting in line to get out of the festival itself. And then there was an hour long backup in his way back to Reno. So that's a 12-hour drive. But he also said that he was still in good spirits when he was waiting in line just to get out of Burning Man. He said his group was playing music and dancing by their vehicle. When the rain started to fall at Burning Man, he said they went around to different tents and campsites and played music and danced with people and checked to see if they need anything. Once the rain subsided or towards the end of the rain, they couldn't really dance in the mud. Apparently, dancing in the rain is much easier than dancing in the mud. <laughs> but he he said for some people, it did take the wind out of their sails, but a lot of people were able to still enjoy it. Yeah, a few of the burners that I've talked to that were, you know, out there this year were like, it was maybe a little annoying, but it wasn't the end of the world the way that some people were saying. But yeah, there was that huge backup, the the, the burning of the temple. So during Burning Man, they burn a giant wooden effigy of a man and they also burn a temple and you said that was delayed yeah it was delayed by a day just because of the conditions so instead of happening monday the fourth it happened tuesday the fifth i went to whole foods just to talk to different burners on their way back on the fifth so people who didn't quite stay for the temple burn and there weren't as many people there as usual i think people were trying to get out when they could and that was the third and the fourth there were about seventy thousand people there different people took the rain differently i think for some people it did ruin their time, but I think at least from the people that myself and my colleagues have talked to, it didn't ruin it for them. It just made it different. 
Yeah. And a big thing with Burning Man too is whatever you bring in, you got to take out. And so there's this big effort to clean up and BLM, uh, which actually manages the land that Burning Man is held on every year and leases it to them, has a requirement, right? For so much of it to be cleaned up. What does that effort look like in the past? What is it looking like now? And you know, like, how is it going to move forward here with all that rain, which obviously made it a little bit more difficult to clean things up with so much mud? Yeah, leave no trace. That's sort of the saying, the really big theme of Burning Man. And it's something that a lot of burners talked about with us that they take it very seriously. Obviously, this year, it complicates things a lot. But sort of to take a step back, Black Rock City LLC, which is the company that runs Burning Man, does have an agreement with BLM. It's right now it runs through 2027. And there's a temporary closure of the area for Burning Man, 66 days each year. Um, there's 31 to build the makeshift city nine for the main event, and 26 for post-festival cleanup. But it involves smoothing out the dried area with large rakes attached to trucks. It involves picking up trash. Some burners stay, some Burning Man employees stay. But there's a lot of talk this year about how the cleanup is going to be a lot more arduous than other years. But actually, last year, the first Burning Man festival in three years due to the pandemic, they just barely passed the inspection. It was described as one of the messiest years in recent memory. Obviously, this year, there's a lot more complications, but it's something to look out for. I think it's early October this year that there will be that inspection. It'll be interesting to see how it goes. All right, Gabe. Well, you and your colleagues over at the AP have done some great reporting on this, and I'm sure we'll hear more as the news uh, continues to come out. So, Gabe, thanks so much. Keep up the good work. Thanks so much for having me, Joey. This was fun. All right. Well, I am here with our DC correspondent reporter extraordinaire, Gabby Birenbaum. Gabby, how's it going? Doing well, Joey. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And uh, before we get started, I always ask about the weather on the East Coast, although I was also just on the East Coast and I can tell everybody that it was hellish. Yeah, <laughs> it was too humid. How, <laughs> you know how miserable it's been. It's been humid. It's been hot. It's been sweaty. You walk out and you feel like you just take a shower. You've been outside for five minutes. It's been pretty bleak. <laughs> yeah. For those listening in Reno and Las Vegas and anywhere else in Nevada, the dry heat is is a blessing. Appreciate it. <laughs> but anyway, Gabby, you and me are chatting today about primaries, which I know we've you know talked about a little bit before, but this is a little bit different. We're having kind of some debacles of sort with uh, the Republican Party specifically and how they want to conduct their primary here in Nevada before the 2024 election. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So basically, if people recall, Governor Sisolak a few years ago signed a law creating a presidential preference primary for the state of Nevada. So the state is legally obligated to and has the funds to hold a primary for the presidential nominating contest. So on the Democratic side, it's probably not going to be competitive. People expect Biden should be able to win, um, but they'll have the primary and then they'll also have a primary for um, the Republicans. The problem is that the Republican Party wants to have a caucus and will be holding a caucus two days after the primary. So this creates a bit of a dilemma for the candidates, wondering which event they should sign up for and how exactly that's going to play out. So for those not in the know, what's the difference between a primary and a caucus? They're, they're, they're two different beasts. Yeah, so a primary is much more similar to any other election you participate in. You can do your mail voting for a certain period of time beforehand. There's early voting or you show up on the day of. You fill out your ballot the same way you would for any other election, and then they tabulate the results. And as long as you're registered in Nevada, as long as you're a registered member of the party holding a primary, you can vote in that. A caucus is a little bit different. You have to show up in person. People sort of make their case for their candidate. You declare which one you want, and then they 
tally those results and they keep narrowing it down, narrowing it down until a winner emerges. But you have to participate in person. The way the Republican Party is running it, it's going to be done with paper ballots. You can only do an absentee ballot if you're active military and you have to show voter ID in order to participate, which is not something that the state compels you to do if you're doing a state run election. Yeah. So it'll be confusing because the Democratic primary will be done two days before the Republican caucus happens. So the parties are actually going to be split by like days um, in terms of results. Nevada only has about one percent of the delegates for the entire country. So because it's an early state, it's not so much about the actual delegate count. It's about the perception of having been a winner in Nevada going into Super Tuesday. It's the last state to vote before Super Tuesday. So in that case, a candidate could be compelled to go in the primary because if they were to win the primary, there could be media coverage for those two days in between saying they have momentum. On the other hand, I talked to uh, Vivek Ramaswamy's campaign. They said, we're going for delegates. We're trying to win the nomination that way. And so we'll be participating in the caucus. And the GOP has also asked candidates to only participate in the caucus, not the primary. So it's it's been confusing for everyone. And I think that confusion is frustrating some of the other campaigns who feel like it's not worth putting resources into Nevada because voters don't exactly know what's going on and are confused. So why should they try to spend resources to explain it when they could put those resources towards Iowa or South Carolina or New Hampshire? Yeah, I mean, I'm still a little bit confused. So we've got a primary for both the Republicans and the Democrats two days before a single caucus for Republicans. So there's like three things before the general election happening, two for the Republicans, one for the Democrats, and the Republicans are doing two different ones two days apart. Which one counts? Is the primary the one that counts? Is the caucus the one that counts? Do you combine the results of those two? Well, don't feel bad about being confused. I talked to Congressman Amadei, who's the only federally elected Republican, and he said, you can count me as being in the confused camp. And when he was home over recess, that's what he was hearing a lot from other Republicans, that they're confused. So in terms of the delegates being awarded, that'll come from the caucus. But in terms of the media coverage, the narrative, it could be either or both. And, and why why is the state Republican Party doing this? Why are they splitting this into two different events? Well, they say that a caucus is important for election integrity and security. They feel like they want to run it in a way that they feel comfortable. Nevada had always had a caucus prior to 2020 when the Republicans didn't even have a nominating contest in 2020. They just nominated Trump and sat that one out. So they feel like it's adhering to Nevada history, as well as with things like the voter ID, with the paper ballots. They feel like it's adhering to the ways that they want to run an election and the election principles they have. That's the view of the chairman, Michael McDonald. If you ask the DeSantis campaign, they say they're doing this to rig it for Trump. They feel like a caucus, because caucuses typically get less participation, there's very few left in the U.S., you have to be pretty devoted to show up right in person and talk about your candidate and hear things and whatnot. They feel like that advantage is Trump, who typically has the most zealous and passionate supporters in any state, including Nevada. It advantages Trump, they say, because he already has a working campaign infrastructure and operation and people that he can tap to lead those efforts because he's run in the state twice already. And they feel like the confusion over the primary and the caucus is not worth them investing resources trying to explain what's going on. They feel like it's the state party just sort of putting it in the bag for Trump. And that's what that's what Super PAC that's supporting DeSantis told me. Gabby, I know there's also a, a lawsuit around all of this. What's the lawsuit? Who's suing who? What's going on there? Yeah. So the latest is that the Republican Party is suing the state, the secretary of state, to try to stop them from holding a primary. That lawsuit is still ongoing. Sigal Chata, who formerly ran for attorney general, is representing the state party. And so when we know more, we'll update you but it is actively in legal limbo at the moment. Yeah. And like 
there's been a lot of talk about Nevada being early and there was a lot of effort to make Nevada the first state in the nation to vote. And then it kind of happened, didn't it ended up not happening really. And now we're, we're third in the nation after New Hampshire and Iowa. Tied second among the Democrats, but still fourth among the Republicans. I think the biggest impact right now is that it's making Nevada somewhat irrelevant among the campaigns. I think because of this confusion, maybe even because of the fact that Trump has that strong base here and candidates don't feel like it's worth it to try. But compared to the three other early states that I mentioned, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada's received way less campaign attention. Trump came once. DeSantis has come twice, once as a declared candidate and once not. And Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, some of these other contenders have have not had any events in Nevada. And so I think the biggest impact at the moment, this might be something they want to think about for 2028, is that it seems like it's making Nevada an afterthought on the Republican side. Well, our CEO, John Ralston, has the saying, hashtag we matter. I think last election cycle, by this time, we had dozens and dozens of visits already. So definitely a, a different air for the 2024 election compared to the 2020 election. Definitely. And I think if you look at John's Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it now, I think you'll see how this is upsetting his We Matter thesis. Well, John, you can keep tweeting that and uh, we'll keep retweeting you or whatever else we got to do on the new X platform. But Gabby, thank you so much for being on and explaining this very confusing situation. I'm sure we'll have more to talk about as we get closer. And we cover both both of these, the primary and the caucus, and enjoy the humid D.C. weather. Thanks, Joey. And yeah, I would say if you're still confused, you're not alone. I think a lot of publics of the state are similarly confused. All right. We'll try and keep you updated and uh, clear up any of that confusion when we can. Thanks, Gabby. Thank you, Joey. I am here and I am joined with my lovely co-host, Jacob Sleese, who's here a lot. But we're also joined by our editor, Michelle Rendell. A lot of stuff happened last week. And Jacob and I thought it would be a good idea for the three of us to just do a quick lightning round news roundup. Jacob, let's hit some of those legislative notes. There's a lot of news coming out of the legislature, even though we're not in the legislative session right now, but a lot of kind of movement happening, right? That's right. So for anyone who wasn't paying attention, about two weeks ago, the Las Vegas Review Journal ran a story that basically said that Assemblywoman Michelle Gorlow had taken a nonprofit position at a group that had just taken $250,000 from the legislature as part of something called the Christmas tree bill. This was a very large bill with many millions of dollars inside of it, basically trying to make sure that a bunch of money didn't go back to the federal government. So they gave it to a bunch of nonprofits. Now, several months later, it is appearing that several of those nonprofits are now linked to several legislators. So the Republican campaign apparatus under Governor Joe Lombardo, his PAC, Better Nevada PAC, has been hammering Democrats about this and semi-related issue, trying to entangle as many Democrats as they can into this Christmas tree bill, although it should be said there were several Republican beneficiaries of the Christmas tree bill as well, a bill that was also signed by Republican Governor Joe Lombardo. Expect this to be a thing that continues happening over the next couple of months. Yeah. And we're doing uh, some reporting on that Christmas tree bill. This is a thing they have done for quite a few sessions, if my memory serves, where at the end of the session they had, let's say, $75 million. Uh, They throw it out to a variety of nonprofit organizations. It could be the Boys and Girls Club. It could be the Urban Chamber. There's maybe 20 or more organizations that are getting allotments ranging from, let's say, maybe $50,000 to a couple million dollars. At the very end of this session, the Republicans stood up and complained that it was a pork bill with just a bunch of spending that was to favored groups. But as Jacob pointed out, the governor signed this, but now it's creating a lot of mess for Democrats who 
have to defend their votes on a bill that they may have had some conflicts of interest. There's actually a bunch of other legislators that aren't seeking re-election also, Jacob. That's right. So there's a couple we can knock out real quick. So early last month, Senate Minority Leader Heidi Sievers-Gansert said that she wouldn't run for re-election. It basically ends a two-decade career in and around Nevada politics. Separately in Vegas, you've got Assemblywoman Leslie Cohen announced she wasn't going to run for re-election. That is more of a retirement, essentially. And then Assemblywoman Sabre Newby, who took a job with the city of Las Vegas, also announced she was not going to run. So I think you're really seeing a lot of movement in districts that are super swingy. What's at stake here is a supermajority. Right now, the Democrats have a supermajority in the Assembly, and they're one seat shy of that in the Senate. So they really want to get that two-thirds vote. So you don't see what happened this session, which is Lombardo vetoed 75 of their bills. They were rendered pretty useless on some of these bills because there's a Republican in the governor's office. So I feel like both sides are taking it very seriously. They want to make sure they don't lose based on some vote on a Christmas tree bill and someone's conflict of interest. So they're probably looking for candidates to have a clean background. Yeah. And just to contextualize some of the math here, Dems have a exact supermajority in the assembly. They can't lose a seat. And then they need one more seat in the Senate, like Michelle said. So it is extremely tight. Every race is going to matter. And a lot of these swingy races, frankly, in Las Vegas and Reno, you have a lot of these like what I'll call quasi suburban districts where the, the math favors them, but not a ton. And those districts, I think, are going to be really key to deciding, yeah, like Michelle said, the makeup of the legislature and whether or not Lombardo gets to actually govern in past session number two. And I should say the two-thirds is a magic number because if you have a two-thirds majority, you can get a tax through without needing to win over Republicans on the other side. And then you could also override a veto. So the Democrats, if they had two-thirds majorities in the Assembly and the Senate, they could have come back and they could have reversed a lot of the vetoes. So moving away from the legislators themselves, but still talking about the legislature, we're going to be talking about cannabis here for a second. And Michelle, there was some cannabis news. Our colleague Naoko wrote a story last week about the Biden administration recently announced that it wants to move cannabis from Schedule 1, which is a category that includes heroin and LSD and all these highly <laughs> problematic drugs. He wants to move it to Schedule 3, which is a category that might include steroids and things that are considered less potentially deadly or potentially likely to be abused. It's not satisfying a lot of folks who want cannabis to be completely decriminalized. If it was completely decriminalized, maybe you could get a prescription and you could have your insurance cover it. The Biden administration's proposal is sort of uh, halfway appeasing folks in the cannabis sphere. Um, there's a Nevada group that's discussing the policy implications of this and uh, it's still yet to be finalized. At this point, it's just a proposal from the federal government. But the group on the Nevada side is really working to try to discuss what changes this could bring. And I think probably if you're looking at what could be the impacts of this change, a lot of it is on the business side for legalized pot businesses across the country. You're looking at being able to deduct more expenses, easier times banking, and some actually some research implications as well. So speaking of businesses, we're going to talk about something not related to cannabis, which is the stadium referendum. Yeah. So uh, the Nevada State Education Association, the statewide teachers union, um, filed paperwork to get a referendum on the ballot to nix the funding for the A's stadium in Las Vegas. They want to see if the state is willing to put 
say $380 million toward a stadium in Las Vegas, they say that money could go towards education. It's a very high bar to get this passed. Uh, I believe it's upwards of 100,000 valid signatures. Nevada has such high regulations, honestly, for ballot questions that it's pretty rare for a ballot question to qualify. You really do need a professional operation gathering all the signatures to make it happen. The NSEA, which is the Nevada State Education Association, it is the statewide teachers union. It is the one leading the effort. It is currently planning to do this with volunteers, which kind of makes us wonder about its viability. But if it did succeed, it would be able to excise from the law the language that was put in there by the legislature in the special session earlier this summer that gives the AUs $380 million in public financing. I believe the last ballot measure that passed like this that didn't go through the legislature that went as a referendum was in 1990 when they put abortion in state statute. So high bar, like Michelle said. And to wrap up, we were talking about the teachers union. Let's talk about another union. Uh, you like all these transitions I'm doing here between all these different news stories. Um, so the culinary union is maybe going to strike, which would be the first time uh, since the 80s. Right, Michelle? Yeah, there was a big strike back in 1984 that kind of shut down things in the city. So if it gets to this point, it would be pretty historic, probably pretty unlikely that it would actually get to that point. If things don't progress in the next couple of weeks, there's a vote set for September 26th where uh, the union could vote to go on strike. There's plenty of time and I don't think anybody wants the city um, shut down over a labor dispute of this type. All right. And we'll wrap it there. We have tons of stories like these and more on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Michelle, always appreciate that. And Jacob, uh, you and me are going to hop over to the outro now. But thank you, Michelle, for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We want to thank Gabby Bierenbaum, Gabe Stern, and Michelle Rendells for being on the show today. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with help from Alex Kuro and additional help from Michelle Rendells. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at com. Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Next week.